are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, good morning, listeners, and maybe for you, I guess it might not be a morning. Maybe it's an afternoon or an evening, either way. Um, If it is morning, afternoon, or evening, may it be good for you. Uh, We've got a lot to go over in Chapter 6, a lot of pretty deep topics. I'm going to try to get through the entire chapter just in one go of it. I I really don't want to break this up into two parts. As I talked about at the beginning of chapter 5, part 2, I would encourage you to make sure that if this is your first time joining me as we're going through the book of Romans, it would be really beneficial for you to go back and listen to the other podcasts so that you can get uh, more of a a better understanding of where we've come from starting in chapter 1 to right now, not only context, but context of certain words context of you know what grace truly is what justification is our responsibility within it all of that is going to be kind of a necessity even of kind of going through chapter six and even the rest of the way that's a great foundation for us to kind of dig the footings on to be able to understand as we're building through romans you're going to need some of those things so if this is your first time joining us welcome um this message will stand alone and you can still glean from some things from it. However, there's some things that are going to be probably missing from your vocabulary and understanding where I'm coming from um, on terms such as grace or as we're going to get to the very end of it, this gift of salvation or this gift of eternal life. So with that said, let's get right into this. Verse 1, what shall we say then? There is that word again. If you were with me as we dissected this concept, um, I believe is in the... Uh, chapter 2, I think is where it was. That word then is an indicator. So there's something previously that he was talking about that he's now linking to this concept, right? And the concept is the reality that we are no longer under the law of Moses. We are no longer, as a result, under the law of sin. We have now come into the law of Christ by the grace of God, which is the divine influence of God in the life of the person who believes and is humble before him and walks in that humility. And so, go back and listen to that. You'll kind of get more of a concept of that. I've got too much to just be bogged down just on that. He says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Remember, we're not under the law of Moses any longer. We are under grace. And it was through the law that that, uh, the law was added to increase the trespass so that we would understand our depravity, our sinful nature, our rebellion against God, and the need for our hearts to be changed, not just our actions. Okay? He says, by no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Several things to break down on this. I would really love it if I just kind of had all these verses that I want to go over just kind of laid out for me. And I guess I could do that and go through, you know, and write all these things down. However, I'm going to try to use my phone and go through these as needed. But one of the things I want to point out to here or point out through this is everything in here is is spiritually contextualized. All right. Here's what I mean by that. Being dead to sin. Okay. Um, where it says we've been baptized into Christ Jesus. I, I'm, I'm not literally like physically in Christ Jesus. I'm spiritually raised with him in heavenly places. But I'm not physically, like literally inside the body of Jesus Christ. This is spiritualized to be taken by faith. It says we are baptized into his death. We are buried, therefore. I'm not underground, but I'm spiritually buried with him by baptism into his death in order just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Everything here is spiritually contextualized. And the reason I bring that up is because this is a passage that a lot of people will use at, say, water baptisms. When somebody is getting baptized into the faith, people use this passage for water baptism. And I think that there are some misconstrued ideas that come from this. And a lot of times I've come into conversations with people, and and I get it, there's some confusing text that's there, but I think that the more we actually dissect it, the more that it clarifies and becomes black and white, to where, here's, here's what I mean by all of this, is that many people believe that unless you are water baptized, you cannot be saved. And this is a proof text that is through water baptism that we actually find our salvation. And I'm going to tell you that I don't believe that to be true. I believe water baptism is an important step of obedience. And it's what displays to everyone else, the witnesses there, that hey, you know what, there has been an inward transformation in my heart and I'm taking the step of obedience to identify with Christ in this public display so that you can see the spiritual reality that has happened inside my heart that has been done through the Spirit of God. And here's what I mean by this. John the Baptist said that I baptize with water for the forgiveness of sins, but he who comes after me baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In John 13, he goes to wash Peter's feet. Jesus is is having this very well-known Passover supper that he's doing with the disciples, and he's washing their feet. And he washes their feet, and he gets to Peter, and Peter says, no, you are not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says these, these key words on the heels of what John the Baptist says, unless I wash you, You have no share with me. Now, what is it that Jesus baptizes with? What is it that he washes in? Is it water or is it the spirit? You see, there is a physical washing that was something that the Jewish culture did. It was considered that even after a baby was born, they would take the saline solution. They would wash the baby. And there was this ritual that was there that was even customized by John the Baptist. However, when Jesus came onto the scene, he switched things from the physical to the spiritual. And it was no longer about the water baptism. It was about the spiritual baptism. And that will make sense in a second. 
Some of you might ask the question, why then was Jesus water baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness? So I'll tell you, I believe it's in Leviticus 8 where it says that in order for somebody to serve as the priesthood or under the priesthood, they had to be washed by a Levite. Well, here's the problem with that. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. But you know who was a Levite? John the Baptist. So in order for Jesus to put on the holy garments and serve as a priest, he had to be washed according to the law. He had to be washed by a Levite. This is what it means to fulfill all righteous. The righteous requirement of the law fulfilled through Jesus Christ. It is not about the water baptism. It is about the spirit. Listen to what he says in John 5, 24. Okay? Remember, scripture is not going to contradict itself. You either are saved by grace through faith or you are saved by works done in the flesh. Here's what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you in John 5, 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Meaning you were marked and identified as belonging to God in the spiritual realm with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the down payment or guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I can take you through 1 Corinthians 6.11. I can take you through Galatians 5.25. It talks about if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I could take you through so many different ones, but I'm going to kind of resolve to just take you to Titus chapter 3, and I'm going to read 4 through 6. And here's what he says. But when the loving kindness, I'm sorry, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. You know what would be included in that? Water baptism. Do I believe it's an important step? Yes. Do I believe it's an identification to the witnesses, the body of Christ, that you're in this with them, that they now can hold you accountable as a public display of what you have done and what you are testifying to of what God has, been, has done in you? Absolutely. It is an important step. But just as Peter learned in Acts chapter 2 when he says, hey, repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins, then went on to learn later on when God taught him in Acts 10 and 11... That Cornelius received the Spirit along with the Gentiles with him before they were water baptized. And he learned that it is the sanctification through the Spirit by faith in his name, not by deeds done by us. And here's what Paul is writing to, T to Titus as he finishes it up. He says, not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he has poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This passage in Romans 6, I think a lot of people misconstrued to be referencing water baptism, and I get it. But you know, there's three baptisms in Scripture that are being talked about. One is the baptism of suffering. Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my suffering until it is accomplished. There's a baptism of suffering. There's a baptism of water, and there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the one that Jesus washes with is the one that is necessary for salvation, and it is the reception of the Holy Spirit that is washed over us. It's the regeneration and the renewal and the pouring out of that Holy Spirit upon us that causes us to be sharers with Christ. You can be dunked in water all you want to. 
But it will not bring you any closer to Christ unless you first have been washed by Him in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit through your faith in Him. That is why John 5.24 says, The one who believes in me has eternal life. That's the beginning. And water baptism is simply just the next step. So I'm not going to get too much into it. And, and some of you might be like, well, what about 1 Peter chapter 3 where it says baptism which corresponds to this now saves you? I'm going to tell you that it's the exact same thing as Romans 6. It's spiritualized contextually. You need to understand that there is a spiritual baptism. There is a water baptism that is physical. But it is done so that the physical can see the spiritual work in you. It is the spiritual that is needed for you to enter the spiritual. This is why in John 3, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, Hey, what must I, uh, what must I do? Right? And Jesus says, You need to be born again. And he says, uh, uh, What? Yeah, am I to crawl back up on my mother's womb? See, that's the problem. He's physically analyzing the situation. And he's like, no, 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 no. You need eyes to see and ears to hear. Yes, you have physical eyes and physical ears. But you're not spiritually understanding it. As First Peter chapter, what is it? Chapter 3, chapter 2. Yeah, for, uh, now I don't remember. Chapter 2 or 3. Read both of them. It would be really good for you. Where he says that the natural person does not understand the things of God for they are folly to him. It's the spiritual who understands it. Because they are spiritually discerned. Nicodemus didn't get it. He says that which is flesh is flesh and that which is spirit is spirit. You must be born of the spirit. It's not enough for you to be born of the flesh. It's not enough for you to do physical deeds. You have to have the washing of the Holy Spirit which is given unto you when you put your faith in the submission of Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. I say all that because I don't want us to miss the point of Romans chapter 6. It is not referencing specifically water baptism. It is referencing specifically in its spiritualized context the baptism of the Holy Spirit that is given to us. And now because we have been regenerated, because we have been renewed, because we have now had it poured out on us, we then desire to move forward in showing a public display of what Christ has accomplished in us. So that the rest of the church would see that I identify with what he has already accomplished in me. Super important for us to understand that. So moving on in that one. Oh, actually, I want, to, I want to point this out in verse 4. It says that we too might walk in the newness of life. I want to tell you, Galatians 5.25 says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is not something that just is an automatic thing, that just because you have been given the Spirit and you believe in Christ, that automatically you're just going to start walking in good works. No, that's something you actually have to choose to do. And that will make sense in a little bit as we're, as we're going to dissect Galatians chapter 6, 7-10. through 10. In correspondence to something towards the end of Romans chapter 6. If I actually get to it. Let's go on. Verse 5. For, so another indicator term. You're going to see Paul does this a lot with words like therefore, for, then. He's linking it. So it's imperative that we make sure that we keep the context and the flow of the passage going. For if we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now this is a key thing because this is a passage that brings hope to the believer. First Corinthians 15, Paul's talking about it there where he says, look, if, if this is it, if this life is all that there is, oh man, what hope do we really have? We are to be most pitied. But he says, but actually Christ did resurrect. 
And because of that, we have a hope past this life for eternal life. Paul says it like this in Philippians chapter 3. On the heels of what we just talked about of Torah. In verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Go back and read some of the things he talked about prior to. And count them as rubbish. Again, go back and read some of the things he talked about prior to. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. It's this access unto righteousness that He has given to us through the blood of Jesus Christ, that canal unto grace, the canal unto righteousness, in which we now have the choice to put on those garments and to walk in them, keeping them unsp- uh, without spot and without blemish. I now have the ability to walk in righteousness, not because my own strength, but because of His grace that empowers me to live it out. So he goes on, he says this, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Super, super interesting to know that in order to walk in the righteousness of God through the person of Jesus Christ, it depends on faith, which means there's merit there. It's not unmerited. It depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings becoming like Him in His death. Notice, He's not saying that this has already happened. He's saying that it's now possible for it to happen. Catch the context of what Philippians 3 is stating, what Paul is saying, the same author as Romans. He's not saying that when I gave my life to Jesus, all of a sudden I came in and I became the righteousness of God. He's not saying that now I just know Him and that's never going to change one way or the other. I can't know Him more. He's not saying that I'm not, I, I already share in His sufferings. He's not saying that I've become like Him in His death. He says, I can become all these things. I can know Him to a deeper level now. He said that I would know and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And catch this, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. If he had already attained it, then why is he saying by any means possible, I will do everything that I can to make sure that on that last day that I get the resurrection from the dead. If it's a foregone conclusion and it's already promised, signed, sealed, delivered. You see, Paul understood that he had work to do. Paul understood that he could not just simply sow to the flesh and reap eternal life. He had to sow to the Spirit to keep in step with the Spirit in order to reap that eternal life in the end. And that will make sense as we go through Galatians chapter 6, 7 through 10. So it goes on, he says this in verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now this word nothing is katergeo and it means um, if I can read my own handwriting here, actually. Um, yep, I don't know what that word is, so I'm going to go to the next words. It means to be um, to cease and to become inactive. That the body of sin might become inactive instead of active in our life. That we would choose to say, I realize I am no longer under sin's dominion. I am not enslaved to sin as I was apart from Christ. Now in Christ, I have been given victory over that sin and dominion over that sin. So now I can rule sin. Man, that is good news. 
It's a lot better than what many people are propagating from the pulpit today in saying, you know what? You're just going to be a sinner saved by grace. You're just going to be somebody. You'll never be able to live up to Jesus. Let me just tell you, Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. How do we imitate God? We look to the person of Jesus Christ who is the exact imprint of His character. Essentially what Paul is saying is, I want you to look like Jesus who looked just like God. And praise God, he says, I have given you the ability to do it. This side of heaven. It's not something you have to wait for until the day you die. Then you get to become like Jesus. No, that's when you no longer have to work to be like Jesus. You will be as he is. Here in this life, you have to make a conscious choice to sow to the Spirit. You have to make a conscious choice to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to put on the Spirit of God. But the possibility is there. He says, in this concept, he says, look, you have died with Christ. Okay? You've been buried with Him. Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right? In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. In the life that I live, I live now unto the glory of the Son of Man. Paraphrase what it says. He says this. We was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that... Sin's power has been stripped from your life. It no longer has dominion over you because you're no longer under it because you're no longer under the law of Moses. He says, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It's not just a propitiation from the former sins that we committed in the past before coming to know Jesus. It's power over sin. And I've talked about this at length, so I'm not going to go super in-depth into it. I just want you to know that Philippians 4.13 is as true today as it was back then. That I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That when you understand grace is not just unmerited favor, it is the divine influence of heaven in, in the life of an individual here on earth. Then all of a sudden, 2 Corinthians 9.8 makes so much sense when it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, and I'm confusing that again actually with Ephesians 3 like I did in the last one. Let me just turn to it so I don't get it wrong. It says to him in verse 8, And God is able to make all grace all power, all of heaven's divine influence in order for you to be a partaker of the divine nature, as 2 Peter 1.3 says. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. In Christ, God has given us this ocean of grace to say, you need help in time of need? You got it. You need authority over sin? You got it. You need the ability to repent from sin that you have stumbled in? You got it. You need the ability to take every thought captive under the obedience of Jesus Christ? You got it. You have everything you need to live out a life of godliness, which is why Paul says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And yet today I hear so many people saying, no, 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 no. Uh, it's, we're just so insufficient. We're not up to the task. We could never be like Jesus on this side of, of heaven. I'm sorry, you're wrong. That is not what Scripture teaches. So that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. In the same manner that Jesus lived, you also have been given the grace to live it. 
Now, may we as the church start believing that again. Is it probable? No, because it takes work. It takes effort. It requires you having to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And that flesh can be very strong and seductive. But is it possible? You better believe it. Because otherwise, you won't achieve it. He goes on, verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. That means... Not only just spiritually, as it talks about we've been raised with Him in heavenly places, seated at the right hand of the Father, that we are in Christ, and that is to be taken by faith, to realize that everything that Christ had access to, we have access to. One day, we will actually be with Him, physically and spiritually. But right now, it's just something that's taken by faith. And God is going to test the hearts of the righteous. He's going to put obstacles in our way. And He's going to do things in our life that's going to test that faith so that we can be refined into the image of Jesus Christ. As it talks about that He learned obedience through what He suffered in Hebrews chapter 5. We've got to understand that this is referencing abiding with Him. If we're not abiding with Him, then we can do nothing for the glory of God. That's what John 15 says. We must abide. That means the Greek word meno means to remain or to tarry. It's to stay in the current position one is. Essentially, we come under new ownership. It says it's no longer sin who owns us. It's no longer the law that owns us. It's Christ. And as such, because we've come into new ownership, we are no longer under sin, we're no longer under the law, we are under Christ as Lord of our life. Because of that, He gives us the means to go out and accomplish the will of the King. Sin didn't do that. Actually, I take that back. It was just a different King. Sin did give you the means to do it. It was just a different King. He goes on in verse 9, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once and for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. Now that is something to praise God for, but is also something that should make us quiver. That'll make sense here in just a second. In Hebrews chapter 9, 23-28, I'm just going to read the whole thing here. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all. At the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Meaning he destroyed the power of sin. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He says, just as it is appointed for man... Um, to die once and after comes judgment, so it is with Christ. That he appeared to die once. And after that will come the judgment. 
And if you are one of those who are eagerly waiting for him, this is a, a wrench in the, pre, in the pre-tribulation rapture theology or um, eschatology. If you are one of those eagerly waiting for him, you get rewarded. And if you're not, then you don't. But why should that make us quiver? Why should that make us quake in our boots, if you will? Well, I believe it's because of Hebrews chapter 6. Remember, both of these are saying that he will not die again. He can't die again. It's impossible. He will not die again. So because we know that there's this one chance to come into the life of Christ, he's never going to come back and deal with sin again. He's not going to come back and die again. He did it one time. Because we know that, this warning to Christians has much more severity. He says this in Hebrews chapter 6, 4-6. through six, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit. It's the word metekos. It means that they have become partners or associates with the Holy Spirit. There's only one person who actually has become, uh, or one type of person who has actually become a share in the Holy Spirit. And that is a Christian. It's impossible for this to be referencing an unbeliever. Impossible. There's only one type of person who has become enlightened and who has tasted the heavenly gift and has shared in the Holy Spirit and has tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, which is a Greek word that means to apostatize. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. Why? Why is it impossible to restore them again to repentance? He tells us. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. He says, in order for you to be restored to repentance after apostasy, which is a desertion of the faith, a complete and utter turning from the faith, after being in it, the only way to restore you is for Christ to have to come again and die for it. But as we just established here in Romans 6, And in Hebrews chapter 9, he is not coming again. The next time he comes will be to deal with sin at the judgment. So this is a pretty hopeful passage if you're in Christ and walking in him. And it's one that should make us quake in knowing that he will not come again. The death that he died to sin was once and for all. He is now the access. This is what Hebrews chapter 10 says. The body that God prepared. He says he no longer looks at the sacrifices of blood and bulls and goats. It was impossible for them to take away sin's curse. You could be atoned for. The blood of bulls and goats could wash away your sins. It could atone for those sins. But it could never take away sin's curse. No matter what you did or didn't do under the law, sin's curse was always going to be there. There was only one remedy for sin's curse and dominion over mankind. As illustrated by the fact that Romans says that prior to Christ, all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I mean prior to Christ, meaning before a person comes into Christ and is given the power and authority over sin. Prior to Christ, everybody, there is not a single person, including Mary, who has not sinned. Because sin's curse, you were born into it. So blood of bulls and goats could atone for it, but it could never take away sin's curse. So what did God do? He prepared a body. That body is the precious body of Jesus Christ. And he says, that's the only sacrifice that I'll look at now. But he's only coming once. You better make sure 
that you honor him and you honor his sacrifice and you live in him and you walk by the spirit that I've given to you and you rise above sin and you get sanctified in the spirit so that you can walk as Jesus walked as an ambassador to this world so that God making his appeal to the world through you and through I would cause the world to bow on their knees to give glory unto the father to say if you can do that in them what can you do in me? This is why he wraps it up in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now you can go read Ephesians chapter 4, 22 through 24, and you're going to see the same thing as what I'm about to read in Colossians chapter 3. And I want you to, to honestly, I'm not going to read the entire thing, but chapter 3, 1 through 17 of Colossians is some really good stuff. And it parallels perfectly with this. Here's what he says. Paul, same author, writing to the church in Colossae. If then you have been raised with Christ. Remember, this is spiritualized. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Man, let me just tell you how many Christians I see falling victim today to an earthly Christianity. Their whole lives revolve around how they can do better at their jobs, how they can make more money at their jobs, how they can love their wives better, how they can love their kids better, how they can give their kids whatever they want to. Everything is about storing up and building up their treasures here on this earth. That's not seeking the things that are above, because let me just tell you, those won't be your kids in heaven. That's not going to be your wife in heaven. You won't have a job in heaven, so, so save worshiping the king. He says, those are the things you need to be training for and setting your mind towards. And how many men and women today are living their lives for the things of this world? And this is why I think Jesus gives us the warning in Luke, 12, uh, Luke 21, I think it's 34 through 36, where he says, stay awake watch out that your hearts are not weighed down by dissipation and cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. And meanwhile, all these men and women are out there working so hard to build their kingdom here. And it's not about building the kingdom of God. He says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Exactly what he says earlier in verse 4, that we too might walk in the newness of life. I'm not saying having a job is bad, having a wife is bad. I'm not saying having kids are bad. I'm not saying your desire to want to, to provide for them is bad. What I'm saying is if it gets in the way of your desire to please God and to, to serve Him on this mission that we have, then it is idolatry. As 1 Corinthians seven twenty nine through 35 says, you can go look in Luke chapter 12. You can go look at the end of Luke chapter 9. You can go look at, the, at Luke chapter 14. It says anyone who um, does not hate their father, mother, brother, sister, wife, children, yes, even their own life, they can't be my disciple. And it was right before that he talks about how these three guys were invited. And they all began to make excuses. And one of them said, I've married a wife. I can't come. Sorry, God. I'm too busy taking care of her. And he says, then you're not worthy to come in. He goes on, oh, here, in Colossians 3, and I'm just going to read verse 5, and then I'm going to go down and read verse 12. But I encourage you to read 1 through 17. 
Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What did, what did he just say? So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So yes, consider yourself dead to sin, meaning sin shouldn't have power over you anymore. Not just that you're dead to sin because sin is now inactive and it doesn't matter. No, it's still coming after you. We're going to talk about that in the next verse. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. It is coming after you. It has a desire and it is for you. And you must rule over it. Something that wasn't possible to do until Christ. This is not just referencing the body of sin as far as just saying, oh, my past, present, future sins were all forgiven and wiped away the cross. No, that is heresy. That is not truth. Because it's not congruent with the Word of God. It's what man has twisted it to say in certain aspects and perspectives, but it is not fit in the fullness of the Word. This is referencing literally sin's passion and power over you. And you must consider yourself dead to it in, in order to not let it reign in your mortal body. And that's why Paul writes to the church of Colossae in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. He says, you have to choose to put to death those things in you. And what does he say in verse 12? Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. He says, put to death what is earthly in you. And you can do that because of the blood of Jesus. And put on then as God's chosen ones. That word put on is a Greek word, enduo, which means to sink into. Who does God give grace to? He gives it to the humble. The ones who are willing to bow the knee, who sink down in their posture before the great and almighty God. Something Job had to learn at the end of his life. You sink down, you get the grace needed to put to death the deeds of the body. Which is possible because of Christ. He goes on, he says, do not present your members to sin. Remember, he is writing to the church. Here in Rome, he is writing to Christians. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. He says, you are not under Torah. You are not under sin's curse. Sin will have no dominion over you because you are no longer under the medium of what God gave to his people to increase the trespass. And sin, finding its power, as he talks about in Romans chapter 7, I brought it up at the end of my podcast of part 2 in chapter 5. Sin, in verse 8 of chapter 7, seizing an opportunity through the commandments of Torah produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law of Torah, sin lies dead. It says sin will have no power because you're not under the law of Torah or the law of Moses anymore. You are now under grace, which is God's divine ability in order to achieve the impossible in you and me who are in Christ. It's not you having to keep some righteous standard on your own strength and own merit. Now God says, I've given you a body in the example of Christ for you to go and live Christ and Him crucified in this life. To go and love one another. 
And now you have everything that you need to do it since you are no longer under law that brings life and death. Now you're in Christ who brought life from death. He says in verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means, or as the King James would say, God forbid. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? And who is he talking to? He's talking to the believers. And he says, do you not know? He's not saying, did you not know? He says, do you not know right now, in your current position of being a Christian, do you not know that if you present yourselves as an obedient slave to sin, it will bring forth death? Wait, wait, what are you saying? He's saying exactly what James 1, 13-15 says, that each person is tempted to the Lord by their own desire, and when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Let me just tell you, the only person who can give birth to sin in their life is a Christian who has been born again. Because you are dead in sin as an unbeliever. The only person who can give birth to sin is a person who has been redeemed from it. So it is impossible for, impossible for James 1, 13-15 to be referencing an unbeliever. He says, Each person is tempted in the Lord by their own desires. Desires conceived to give birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. What James is saying is that a Christian who chooses to make a practice of sin and I know what 1 John 2, 3, and 4 says. There might be some Baptist out there who's going to come to me and be like, oh, obviously this guy has not studied 1 John. I'm going to say you haven't studied the fullness of the Word of God to find the context of what John is actually writing. And I'm not saying this arrogantly. I'm telling you that this is truth. And I would encourage you to go study 1 John with a new lens in um, proportion to the fullness of the text of the new covenant that we have. Stop looking at things with the same perspective that you've always looked at it in. Stop looking at things because some, some dude that you respect taught you that this is what it said. And ask the Spirit to teach you what it says. Because your current rendition of what that states is not inappropriate or is not in proportion to the rest of Scripture. Yes, a Christian can choose to make a practice of sin. I see people get baptized all the time who make a practice of sin. And they say, hey, this dude for 14 years ran away from what God was saying. But you know what? Praise God, he's here right now wanting to get baptized. Well, I, I thought that we believed that if a person was truly born of God, they wouldn't make a practice of sin. Then why did we just baptize somebody and say they were already saved, they just needed to get baptized when for 14 years they were running and making a practice of sin because the one who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. If we're, if we're going to hold to the doctrine, then, then hold to the doctrine, at least be consistent. Paul says it is possible. If you present yourself as an obedient slave to sin, it will bring forth death. And that comes into play in just a little bit as I'm going to get to in Galatians 6. This is going to be a little bit of a longer study. But it is crucial for you to listen to it. It is possible for a Christian who has been born again to become an obedient slave to sin 
and it bring forth death, which to me would be apostasy. It's the Greek word thanatos and is the most severe of all deaths that are used because there are different Greek words that's used there. And that will make sense in a second as we go through Galatians. I'm going to keep going. He says in verse 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, meaning before you knew Christ, have become obedient to the heart, or from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Now, that standard of teaching, I think a lot of people could look at that and be like, oh, okay, well, they, it's the law of Moses. So, like, if you're in a, a Hebrew roots, um, you know, movement, then you would, probably, you would probably believe that this is referencing the law of Moses. Well, let me just tell you, it's not referencing the law of Moses. It's referencing exactly what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. He says this, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What is the standard of teaching? It's the teaching of the cross and the faith of the Lordship of Christ and the love that he had for us. That is the bedrock, the foundation of the teaching that we have. That is the standard of teaching. It has nothing to do with Torah. It has nothing to do with... um, Anything Moses even stated. Listen to what he says. Um, I think it's in 1 John chapter 3. And this is his commandment. Verse 23 of chapter 3. That we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another. Just as he's commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. He says it again. It's the faith and love. The faith in Christ Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the love of the saints. The love of the brethren. He even says in 1 John chapter 3, I think it's in verse 16, where he says, this is how you know you've passed from death to life, if you have love for the brothers. It is not a matter of having love for the world. It is having a love for the brethren, the Adelphos, the beloved. That's how you know you've passed from death to life. Faith and love. That's the standard of the teaching to which he's been committed. And he goes on in verse 18. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now listen to it. A lot of people say, well, that's just the byproduct of coming into Christ, is that you do become a slave of righteousness. No. He's praising God that they have committed themselves to actually doing this. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as at once you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Did you notice the charge that he's giving to them? He's not just saying, you're proving that you were really saved because you're doing this. Praise God. No, he says, I need you to do this more and more. I see that you're doing it. I need you to keep doing it. I need you to keep in step with the Spirit. I need you to do this more and more. Just because you've started doing it does not mean that that brings everything to completion. James 2 says, Faith is brought to completion by His works. He says, You need to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And listen to what he says. He says, So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading... To sanctification. He says you actually have to do something in order for you to be more sanctified into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-8 talks about. He says, 
This is God's will in Christ Jesus for you, your holiness or your sanctification. In verse 8 he says, Therefore whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. It says God gave you the means to be sanctified, and if you're disregarding the notion or the need for you to go and present yourself as an obedient slave to righteousness that leads to your sanctification, you're not disregarding man. Like you can disregard what I'm saying right now, but you're not disregarding man, you're disregarding God. Because it's His Word. He goes on in verse 20, he says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. He says, when you were a slave to sin, before you came to know Christ, you were a slave to sin, enslaved to it and sold under it. That was your portion. That's who you were. You didn't have a choice. You couldn't get above it. You couldn't have dominion over it. He says... You weren't going to get righteousness, and God knew that. That's why He says, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things that you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Donatos. He said, the end of all those things is going to be death. You have no hope in this world. There was no life that was there. The life of God was not manifest into your hearts through the blood of Jesus Christ because you had not submitted to Him as Lord of your life. Therefore, the end of what you were going to have was just corruption and decay and death and misery. But now, you have been set free from sin. He says, you're you're no longer under sin. You've been set free from the body of sin. Not from your past, present, future sins, but from the dominion of sin over your life to where you no longer have to abide under it. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. I want you to catch the the progress there. When you present yourself as a, as a slave to God through the person of Jesus Christ, making Him Lord of your life, and you choose then to become an obedient slave to the standard of teaching to which He has committed us, namely faith and love. And you walk in those, and you keep in step with the Holy Spirit. That is what leads you to be sanctified more into the image of Jesus Christ. And then He says this, and its end, eternal life. What would it's be? It's not just you prayed a prayer and you gave your life to Jesus at one point. It's you were continually living the life of Christ. And as you do that, its end is eternal life. The promise is yours at the moment that you believe. But in actuality of getting the promise in the end, you have need of endurance. This is why Hebrews chapter 10, um, verse 36 says, You have need of endurance so that after doing the will of God, you will receive what is promised. Matthew 10, 22 says, That the one who endures to the end will be saved. doesn't say that was saved as if it was the proof of their salvation, but will be saved as if it's the preservation of their salvation. God gave us the promise that the one who believes has eternal life. Now, understanding that word believes in the Greek is pistio. It's a present tense verb, which means it's an ongoing faith. It's not just one who prayed a prayer when they were nine has eternal life. It's the one who continues the belief all the way to the end has that promise of eternal life. God gave it to you at the moment you believed and submitted to Christ as Lord. And it is yours. You have it. 
But you must endure to the end in order for that promise to come to fruition. Which is why Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 7-8 that I've kept the faith, I've fought the fight, I've finished the race. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Because I kept it through the grace that God afforded to me. And the strength that I had in Christ to be able to utilize that strength. I chose every day to die to my wants in order to live for His glory. And because I endured to the end, again, through the grace that God supplies, eternal life is there for me. He says in 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Knows the position of the promise. The position of the promise is in Christ. And our job is to remain in Him until the end. And if we do, as 2 Corinthians says, that all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Christ. So as long as you remain in Him until the end, you don't apostatize from the faith, but you remain in Him, you have the promise of eternal life. Because God has promised it in Christ. Therefore, the promise belongs to you in Christ. Now, there's a couple things in here. One, 23, you're going to say, but it says it's a free gift. Why would it be free if I don't have to do anything? You know that word free is actually supplied? It wasn't in the original. When you look at King James Version, it just says gift. It doesn't say free gift. And the actual word that's used there is charisma. It means deliverance or a spiritual endowment of divine grace. And you can make a, a, um, an argument... That free is not necessarily unbiblical. God did freely extend it to us. But for you to utilize it to your account, for you to grapple that down, to reckon it down and apply it to your account, it requires something. So while, yes, maybe you can make an argument, it was freely extended. God allows to come into that ocean of grace to be able to sit on that seashore. But for you to go out and swim in it, it's going to cost you. Namely, it says that God gives grace to the humble. You're going to have to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God if you want to utilize the grace. If you are going to be entitled or feel arrogant or if you're going to come to Him and be like, yeah, I don't really feel like doing it today. I'm just going to do my own thing. Then that grace will not be yours. It was freely offered. So you can make an argument, but I do think it's interesting that the word free was not there in the King James. It was simply just a gift. And God, God did. He, he gave it. He put that package on our doorstep like Amazon. He put that package on the doorstep, but you know what? We had to go get it. We had to unwrap it. And then we have to use it. But here's what I want to end with. In Galatians chapter 6, like you could go read, uh, actually I'll I'll get to that in just a little bit. In Galatians chapter 6, I'm going to turn to it real quick on my phone. And I'm going to read this and dissect it briefly. And then we're going to be done. In verse 7 he says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Don't think that you can sow to the flesh and get, and get eternal life. Here's what he says. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But from the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Notice there is a doing of something in order to reap something. The one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life. Check out what Paul says. And let us not grow weary. Notice he now is including himself. Prior to, he was basically referencing the church in Galatia, or the churches in Galatia. And he says, look, among you, if one of you sows to the flesh, this is what he's going to reap. If one of you sows to the Spirit, this is what he's going to reap. Now he's including himself. It's no longer about an individual. It's now incorporative of himself. 
He says this, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. Check what he says. If we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially the household of faith. Right before that, he's talking about bearing one another's burdens and, and all this stuff. He says, look, I, want, I don't want you to mock God. It's like what 1 Corinthians 10 says. That is 1 through 14. I don't want you to think that it's okay to mock God. To say that you can sow to the flesh and think you're going to reap eternal life. He says, you have to sow to the Spirit. You have to actually invest in the things of the Spirit. You have to actually listen to the Spirit. You have to actually... Feel the compelling and the conviction of the Holy Spirit in accordance with the Word of God. And go out there and do it if you want to reap that promise in the end of eternal life. Paul says, and we will reap. It's ours. It's been given to us in Christ Jesus. If we do not give up. Paul puts a condition on the reaping. How do we miss this today? We will reap if we do not give up. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, where he says, Left after preaching to others, I myself will be disqualified from running the race. I myself. And I find it fascinating that he's referencing Christians, he's including himself in this, and somehow we miss the conditionality to the reaping. Even this Greek word that's used, for the one who sows to the flesh will reap corruption. It's the word phthora, and it means decay, ruin, destruction, and going into its root of the word that's used for it. It means a defilement and possibly even misery in hell. You sow to your flesh, this is what you'll get. You sow to the spirit, and this is what you'll get. It's a very simple concept. And one that we have missed today because we have misappropriated certain words and we have given ourselves up to the wrong perspective of certain passages that are not congruent with the rest of Scripture. And I bring all this up because he says in 23, and what I believe, he's not just referencing unbelievers, I believe he's referencing unbelievers and believers. The wages of sin is death. Just as he says in James 1, 13-15, just as he even just talked about with that Greek word for Thor in Galatians chapter 6, 7-10. The wages of sin is death. This is not just a Romans road altar call for unbelievers. I believe it is a warning to believers. Just as much. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God that he bestows to those who would choose to sow to the Spirit and endure to the end is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the question is, what ownership are you going to choose to live under? The new ownership that we've been given in Christ and the grace that God affords to us to live out this life in Christ? Are you still going to live under the ownership of sin? The choice is yours. Y'all be blessed.